The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to today's teleconference to discuss issues regarding H-1B extensions, filing of the green card, having a prior green card, all of those sorts of timing issues that whether you're an employer or an employee are very, very helpful for strategic planning for you as an employee, as an employer, etc. Joining me in today's teleconference are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Multi Law Firm. Uh, we have Chris Dryman, a senior attorney with over 20 years of experience in immigration law, uh, who's done a variety of different kinds of complex situations and cases. Uh, and we have Jim McLaughlin, also a brilliant attorney with over a dozen years right here, or about over certainly a decade at the Multi Law Firm, focusing on uh, green card related issues and other issues. Uh, and so we hope to have a fun and lively discussion where we can discuss a couple different scenarios. Um, and so really, the U as we all know, the US immigration system is so complex and legal minds have stated that immigration law is only second, we know, to tax law or federal securities law in the level of its complexity and nuances. And adding to this complexity, uh, while the law keeps changing, immigration guidance and interpretations change, sometimes based on administrations, as we have seen, or people who are running it or interpreting it in different ways for different reasons. Uh, and we've often talked about immigration having the ebbs and flows and tides uh, similar to the, you know, the oceans that we're surrounded with around in North America. So the purpose of today's teleconference is obviously to shed some light, hopefully remove some of the mysteries regarding maintaining status for individuals, your key employees, while they're pursuing their green cards through the labor certification process. If you're the employer and for the employee, of course, it's your life, your livelihood, and everything connected with that. So with that, we obviously want to just provide a very, very brief preliminary overview on the H-1. I know we've discussed H-1. You all know what H-1 is. Majority of you certainly know it. It's meant for a specialty occupation, meaning that the position must require a bachelor's degree or higher education or the equivalent in a specialty field, and that the employee that you're trying to bring in, the H-1B employee slash beneficiary, must possess the required education or the equivalent at the time of the filing. But we all also know based on RFEs and denials and having run companies or being individuals on the H-1 process that merely by having the bachelor's degree or higher education does not automatically make the person um, belong or make the position into a specialty occupation. The position itself must require a degree in a specific field related to the directly related to the duties to be performed in that position. Now, we've also often talked about two different kinds of H-1Bs. 
the SCAP subject, which is when we have to rush and file those pre-registrations in March of every year, uh, or the CAP exempt, where you can apply any time during the year. There's no rush filing in March or April. It's generally with universities, nonprofit institutions, uh, or uh, hospitals related or affiliated with the universities, etc. And the CAP subject cases have an annual limit each year of 65,000 in the regular quota plus the additional 20,000 for those who have a master's degree or higher from the United States. Um, and so this is really just by way of background. So I'm going to invite Chris Drynan to jump in and just go over the six-year limit and what that means and what our discussion today will focus on. Chris? Thank you, Sheila. Um, anyone who deals with H-1Bs, whether they be an employer or an H-1B worker, is certainly familiar with the concept of the, the six-year limitation for H-1B status, especially, particularly workers are, because this really affects their life, and this is going to affect a lot of their planning for the future. Um, H-1B workers, H-1B beneficiaries, are limited to a total of six years in the United States. Um, and we are talking, it's important to remember, we're talking about time physically in the United States, on U.S. soil. You're not counting any time where you're not on U.S. soil. Um, and that brings up a concept that a lot of people refer to as recapture time. And basically, any time you're outside, any time an H-1B worker is outside the U.S. Uh, for a period longer than 24 hours, during their initial six years of H-1B status, they're allowed to recapture that time. So, to, because you're entitled to, to get your full six years. So if during your, during your first six years of H-1B, you spend six months outside the country on vacation, you can recapture that six months and, and basically get, get another six-month approval to, to make up for that time that you've missed outside the United States. Um, and it's important that this also can be a planning, uh, planning tool. Um, if you're nearing the end of your H-1B, let's say you're at four and a half, five years, and you haven't done anything to, to be able to get beyond that six years, and we're gonna, I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, potentially, you can utilize recapture time to, to sort of extend the timelines a little bit, to buy yourself a little more time to do, do the other stuff that you need to do to get, to get further extensions. Um, now, after you've actually reached the six years uh, of your H-1B status, when you, and there's no more recapture time, and if you haven't done any of the other things we're going to talk about to get more time beyond that six years, you have to leave the United States physically for a full 365 days before you're eligible to file in the H-1B lottery again and to get a new six-year period of H-1B. Um, and uh, as, we're, as I said earlier, one of the exception to all of this is if you pursue an employment-based green card, if you reach certain, certain um, milestones in that process, you can potentially extend beyond that six-year limitation. And, I, and we're going to talk about that later in this conference. Thank you so much, Chris. And that's really the crux of what we're talking about, timing, recapture, all of those issues. So we will just get into that at the end. We'll even try to go through a couple of case examples and stuff like that. But before we do that, I thought it would be very helpful for Jim McLaughlin, our resident PERM green card uh, guru on our uh, panel today, to talk about, uh, you know, just provide a little bit of background on the green card, the PERM process. Sure. Thanks, Sheila. I appreciate that. So, yeah, for, for many of our listeners, they may be familiar with the PERM process, but I'm sure there's 
quite a few out there that are not as familiar because I talk to employers all the time that are first going through this process. And the, the milestones Chris is talking about typically is referring to the PERM labor certification process that most professionals go through. Um, in this process, it requires the employer to uh, obtain a prevailing wage determination from the Department of Labor, conduct the labor market test, make sure there are no qualified U.S. workers willing and able to take the position, um, and then if they don't find any, they can actually file the PERM application with the Department of Labor. Now, the Department of Labor will take their own sweet time to adjudicate that, um, but once it's cleared, then you have a labor certification that's certified. Um, that we'll talk uh, in more detail later, but that in itself is one of the milestones that Chris is referring to. Another milestone is once you clear this first stage and it's certified, then you can file the I-140 petition, which is the immigrant petition an employer will file for their employees with USCIS. That then is another milestone that can typically be utilized to extend an H-1B past the six-year limitation. Now, we'll discuss this in the hypos later, but one thing to just keep in mind for individuals that maybe haven't gone through this process in a while or haven't gone through it recently or are not familiar with the process, the PERM process, that first stage, takes a very long time. Right now, it's a minimum of 16 months if you're starting from the very beginning. And then you may also have the I-140 after, which you may be able to premium process, so that's not as much a big deal. But that first stage you need to keep in mind right now is taking at least 16 months. Thank you so much, Jim. Appreciate that quick overview. So again, Chris laid out the foundation. Jim explained it from the green card perspective. So let's get a little bit into the nitty-gritty of how it works. So with respect to the, all of the exceptions that we're going to discuss to the H-1B six-year cap slash limitation, what is it exactly? It's either the labor certification was actually filed, and as Jim just explained, it could take six, eight months just to file it because you have to wait for the prevailing wage determination to happen, and then only you can file the PERM slash labor certification. So the labor certification must have been filed or the I-140 petition is pending. And I say or because it's and slash or in a PERM case or just by itself if it's a national interest waiver or an extraordinary ability case. It, but it must have been over at least 365 days earlier. Then you're eligible for a one-year H-1B extension of status under what's called a Section 106A until a final decision has been made to either to deny or revoke the PERM or to deny or revoke the I-140 petition or to deny or approve the I-485 or the immigrant visa or the case is administratively closed for any reason. So usually you wait 365 days later, then you get the one-year H-1 extension. What they don't look at is you do not consider a final decision on any of the above if there's some type of an appeal that the employer is filing on the denied perm or the audited perm or the I-140 petition. And sometimes even if you know something, somebody filed a case improperly or incorrectly, it may make sense to file the appeal only for one reason, that is to buy the one-year extension because for whatever reason, the green card was not started well in advance to be able to build this into the process. 
and then you can file for the one-year extension even if the labor certification or I-140 has been pending for 365 days at the time of filing the H-1 petition or the start date of the H-1 petition because if the start date is after a certain period, you could potentially do it so long as it will have been pending for 365 days by the time the H-1B worker's six years would expire. And all of the issues that, that was just explained about recapturing, Chris can certainly, Chris certainly explain some of that. And so it includes all of the recapture time that you can now build in to request that one-year H-1 um, uh, extension. And then, of course, Jim will get into the three-year H-1 in, momentarily. But I'm, before Jim jumps into that issue, I'm going to invite Chris to make sure to discuss additional details about the labor certification portion of it. Chris? Thank you, Sheila. I mean, there's a, we were just talking about the, the potential one-year extension based on a, a labor certification or an I-140 being uh, pending for 365 days. Now, one thing that, that I do want to clarify, because this is a very, very common uh, misconception, there, there used to be a, uh, there used to be a, a, an understanding that you were, you had to file the labor certification before the start of your six year of H-1B to qualify for this. Not true. Um, you're eligible for the, for the one year extension at when, the, when the case has, has been pending three, or when the case has been pending 365 days. Does not have to be, uh, before, that 365 days does not have to be before the end of your H-1B status. Uh, those things are, are, those are independent issues. Um, you might run into a to a gap in status if that's not the case. If you if you start the process um, into the sixth year of your H-1B, yes, you might have a situation where you run out of H-1B time. But that doesn't make you ineligible to potentially get the one the one year of additional H-1B time at the 365 day mark. They're two separate issues. Um, the other thing, if if you are going to use um, if you're applying for that one year extension, there is an important limitation here. Um, that if you have a an I-140 uh, that has a current priority date, you have an approved I-140 with a current priority date, um, you are only eligible to use this one-year extension uh, if the priority date has not been current for more than a year. Okay, so if you have an I-140, the priority date becomes current, and a year goes by, and you have not filed for adjustment of status or have not filed for an immigrant visa, you are no longer eligible uh, for that one year, one year extension. And again, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. We're going to, uh, I think, provide a, an example of that. But that's an important thing that you, you have to remember. Um, there, there is a kind of a ticking clock on this particular exemption. So you have to be mindful of, of your priority date um, and the timing of your ultimate filing for a 45 or for an immigrant visa. Now, that limitation here can sometimes be excused if the failure to file for adjustment of status, the failure to file an I-485 or an immigrant visa was for circumstances beyond the control of the H-1B worker. So there is, kind of, there is a loophole here uh, that some people may be able to fit into if they, if they run into a problem with this. Thank you so much, Chris. And just to clarify, again, what Chris just explained, within one year of the priority date becoming current, again, for those who are not very clear or get confused between the different uh, you know, columns in the Department of State visa bulletin issued by the State Department is when the final action date is current because some people think, oh, I've got this, or oh, I can file and date of filing. No, it's the final action date 
is now been current for more than a year, then you could potentially have this issue where now the final action date is current. And the only reason most people obviously won't be able to file the 485 is because they've left the prior employer. And this was years ago that the company shut down. And since then, the employee has moved to multiple other employers and obviously cannot use that green card, the original permit I-140 to file the 485, which then prevents them from also potentially getting the three-year H-1B extensions because once the final action date is current, at most you can get only one year. And even that one year is a, becomes potentially a, a question because of failure of the employee file the green card, i.e. the 485 slash pick up the immigrant visa from abroad. Um, so we'll get into it, as we said, in example. So Jim, you're going to explain a little bit the three-year extensions, which of course everybody loves Three years, it saves time, money, effort, energy. You don't have to keep renewing it year after year after year. So how does that work? Right, yeah. Thanks, Sheila. So the I-140 is generally the simpler option. You don't have to do as much math, and you get three years, you know, as opposed to the one year. So that's what most people are aiming for, to be in that situation. But it only works when, obviously, when the prior date's not current, um, because then you have to go to the exception that Chris talked about. but the I-140 uh, basically allows an individual to extend their H-1B past the normal six-year limitation um, when it wasn't revoked, it's still valid, and or um, the 45's either been, a, you know, it, it, as long as it's still pending, if the prior date is current. Um, but there's some things people need to be aware of with the I-140 when using that as a basis. Um, it doesn't require an individual to be in H-1B status to use it. So it's h don't think of it so much as an extension of H. Think of it as H-1B time beyond the six-year limitation. So somebody could be outside the U.S. and coming back using that I-140. Somebody could be in H-4 status because they ran out of their initial six years and didn't get to a certain stage yet uh, to be able to file an extension. So they're in H-4 because their spouse is in H-1. So they don't need to be in H-1B status to use that benefit. Um, also, to keep in mind is the I-140 approval doesn't need to be for the sponsor um, who is the in- employer who sponsored your H-1B. You could have an uh, I-140 with employer A and be using it for an H-1B extension or H-1B time with employer B, you know, while you wait for employer B to get to a certain stage in their green card process for you. That's okay. Um, one thing to keep in mind as well is the I-140 can even be used for H-1B time if the I-140 prior the one that you're using has been withdrawn by the employer who sponsored it. Now, there's something to remember, though, that the catch there is. That only became clear for the rule change on January 17, 2017. So any I-140s that were approved and valid for 180 days after January 17, 2017, even if they're withdrawn by the employer because you left them to go somewhere else, that's okay. You can still use that for age time. If that happened before January 17, 2017, it most likely will be okay, but it's not black and white. So um, that may be something you need to talk to us about or your attorney about if, if that comes up. Um, now, the last thing to keep in mind as well is sometimes we see people trying to use their spouse's I-140 for age time. Uh, that can't happen. It has to be an I-140 for you. Thank you, Jim. And just to get the clarification, when you were explaining 
that, for example, you can get the three-year H1 extension even if you're in H4 status, F1 status, B1, B2, because your six years got over, so you were trying to bridge a status. Would any of this change the analysis or the discussion, for example, if the H4 or the F1 or the B1, B2 is still pending with the USCIS when the person applies because the six years are over, now they've switched and it's pending because, as we know, it takes forever, like six months, eight months, a year right. for the USCIS to approve it. Can they still try and request the change to H-1B or the extension for three full years with the extension of status slash I-94 card attached to the bottom of the approval notice? And Jim can jump in and so can Chris. Yeah, it, uh, in that situation, we're in a period of authorized state. That may be an issue. All right, you, you need that bridge. Um, but in this instance, this is something Chris sees every day with what his practice is. So I'll let Chris take it from there. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Um, this, is, this is a situation I see on a daily basis. Um, and I, have to, I, I, I cannot even tell you how many consultations I've had for people in, in this type of situation where I have to explain if you've got a pending, uh, pending change of status to B2, a pending change of status to F1 student, and you want to switch back to H-1B, you've got, you've, you've got a, a, a tough row to hoe there because you can potentially have an employer file that H-1B change of status and request, uh, request that the change of status to H-1B be granted or the approval for H-1B be granted with an attached I-94. In, in other words, to actually change the person back to H-1B status. But that works in, very infrequently. Um, I would say maybe maybe five to ten percent of the time, the government will 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 do that either because they they explicitly agree to do it or just because they they miss the issue, which is also a possibility. Occasionally, that that changes that aspect back to H one B will will work. The more much more common outcome is what's going to happen is is the employer will get a request for evidence, basically saying, hey, it looks like this person doesn't really have a status right now. They're just in a period of authorized stay with a pending B two or a pending F one. Um, send us send us a copy of the approval notice. Um, and at that point, the decision basically is you can try to wait a little longer uh, to the end of the, the the response deadline and the request for evidence and see if you get that approval notice. Uh, for most people, the better choice is just to respond to that request for evidence and say, hey, I'm, with, I'm withdrawing the change of status request to H-1B. Please just approve this for consular processing, which means at that point, you're going to get an approval, an H-1B approval without an I-94 attached to it. You'll have to leave the country, get an H-1B visa in your passport if you don't have one, and re-enter an H-1B status. And that's normally the only way around that issue. Well, what about responding to the RFE saying, hey, we have done this, especially if the employer and employee agree, okay, let's just premium process the darn thing to get a faster answer, mm -hmm. saying, since it's with the same agency, i.e., namely the USCIS, since you have the B-2 change of status or the H-4 change of status spending, would you kindly consider, and we've done that, I think, a few times where mm -hmm. you reply back and say, please approve it because it's spending with you, and once it's approved, you can immediately on the same day, ten minutes, two seconds later, approve this, mm -hmm. and then two seconds later, approve the change of status with the I-94 card attached to, mm -hmm. to help avoid you know, the whole issue of travel and international app applying for the visa, and as we know in countries like India, even getting a drop box is taking three months, six months, a year, sure. two years, forget about an in-person and emergencies and all of that. 
sometimes it will work, as Chris said. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes, you know, if you can be creative and say, you have it with you, so it's in your part to approve it, I would prefer pushing and asking for it rather than putting my tail between my legs and saying, hey, just withdraw that request. Why should I withdraw a request if I don't have to in a perfect world when the agency that has the, the approval and the authority to approve it is right there? It's like crazy. It's telling the right hand to approve what the left hand is doing. And so sometimes I get a little more feisty and aggressive and say, the law requires you to approve it, and that's why we paid it. And if you're unable to give us the answer in 15 days, then give me back my $2,500 premium processing fee or whatever, thousands of dollars that you've taken from my client and getting a little aggressive. But again, you know, we've seen it, like we said, all over the place, and always no harm in a, being proactive to protect yourself as an employer or as an employee. And if you don't have a really good attorney or law firm that's working with you, you clearly know the best in the world right here at the multi-law firm. Um, okay, so the next issue that we talk about is, you know, where we are seeing issues when people change employers, right? So in the past year, obviously, with the rapid movement of priority dates, we have seen a recurring issue among people that we've consulted with, as Chris and I do consultations most of the day, where sometimes people have obtained an I-140 approval with a priority date that is current or close to being current. So if those H-1 workers have now changed to a new H-1B employer recently, within the past year or so, then they suddenly see that the priority date has rapidly advanced. The new employer obviously has not started the green card process or just about planning to start it and the prevailing wage itself is taking six, eight months, so it clearly they haven't filed the perm yet. And given that you need minimum 365 days where the perm is filed and pending to get even that one-year H-1 extension, that H-1 limitation, and given the 365-day limitation on H-1B extensions where the priority date is, is now current, the H-1 employees have suddenly found themselves unable to obtain an additional H-1B extension course, going back to the example that Chris gave, unless it's factors beyond the person's control, where you can explain that it was beyond my control, I can't file it or whatever, what have you, right? You have different issues. So I'm going to invite Chris to come jump back and explain when the employee may be able to extend the H status. Thank you, Sheila. Yeah, as, as, uh, as we've been saying, um, if you were if you're in a situation where you're potentially ineligible for this one-year extension because you're not able to file your 485 application or your immigrant visa within uh, within 365 days of the final action date being current, there is a there is a bit of a, an escape hatch here in the regulations. Um, basically, says that in that scenario, an H-1B employee may be able to extend their status if you can show that the the, the set of circumstances. Um, in other words, the inability to file their 485 within the within the time li the time limit is beyond their control. Uh, not really defined anywhere what beyond their control means. Um, so it's kind of up to the employee and their employer and and their attorney to to make the argument here. Um, I mean, in given what we've seen in the past couple of years, where we had massive advancements of advancement of the the priority dates, primarily because of COVID and a lot of unused visa numbers. Uh, it's kind of a unique situation. Um, I've never, in 
as long as the, these rules have been around, I've never had a situation where I really even uh, had to think about utilizing this this particular exception. But here we are. A lot of people I talk to uh, almost a daily basis are in a situation where they where they might have to make this argument because they're just not going to have enough time to 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 get an I one forty approved uh, before the before the one year mark with a new employer. So I mean, these could be things like arguing the perm is entirely in the control of the employer. Employee really has no opportunity to, to control this process or to speed it up. They're entirely, uh, they're entirely subject to how fast the employer works on the application. Um, COVID has created an unusual situation the past couple of years with this flood of additional employment-based visa numbers. And that sort of priority date advancement was totally unpredictable. No one could ever have expected that to happen. So if you moved in uh, 2019, 2020, before all this happened, or even even uh, later in 2020 when it was still in the in the midst of it, um, really unpredictable that all of this would happen. So if you moved to a new employer, probably you you were at that time you were probably pretty safe in assuming that you had some time where you wouldn't have to worry about this. So really unpredictable, um, and and I think you can make an argument that's beyond the control of the employee. Um, a lot of employers were, were subject to things that were really beyond their control. Um, many, many companies switched to work from home. Many companies worked with reduced staff. So if you had the employers, uh, HR or legal departments slow down because of all this, this COVID, COVID stuff that was going on that was beyond their control, uh, same sort of idea. Um, maybe the recruitment um, uh, that was required for the perm process became difficult or impossible while, while, to, while COVID was going on for two years. All of these are things you can argue uh, that were beyond the control of the employee that could have prevented them from, from getting an approved I-140 with, or getting their 485 filed within the one year. Um, and you could argue this to get that extensual, ex, potential one-year H-1B uh, grant despite missing that deadline. Thank you, uh, Chris. And in fact, while uh, discussing this issue, I think with hundreds and hundreds of lawyers through the American Immigration Lawyers Association in our, you know, sort of different committees where we brainstorm with other colleagues from across the country and we discuss and analyze different legal issues, several people came back and actually said that they were able to show if I've changed the employer, I can't, it would be illegal, it would be fraudulent to file the 485, for example, and to request, you know, to get the EADAP or to try to get extensions, et cetera, because it's, it's beyond my control. Because like you correctly, like you just explained, I don't control when the employer files the firm. I don't do A, B, C, and D. There's a whole bunch of different issues that you're looking at. So there's two different, connected but slightly different issues that are involved here that we just need to be careful uh, about. So another example that we, that I always get in consultations as well is I want to now change my employer but my final action, my priority date is current. What happens? What are my choices? And I know I have a bunch of ideas, but I know I can see Jim uh, just waiting to share his uh, ideas. With So I'll let him jump in and then, uh, you know, we can all jump in and have a lively discussion. Go ahead, Jim. Right. Thanks, Sheila. Yeah, so hopefully they've contacted us before they've actually made the move to the new employer. But, you know, one thing just to, as a sort of a stopgap, you don't necessarily need to request an extension with an H-1. You could ask for time that's already been granted to you. So if, say you just recently got a three-year H-1B, you could potentially just ask for the same time that's already been granted. So that's just something to keep in your head. But one of the first things I like to, to ask the uh, client who's on the phone about 
is, you know, do, do they know if the new employer they're going to already has valid recruitment or prevailing wage? Because if so, then that 16 months can be cut down to something substantial. Labor certifications right now are taking roughly between seven and eight months to be adjudicated. So if there's already valid recruitment or prevailing wage, you may be able to skip and only have to deal with that seven to eight months. So that may be a good opportunity for you. Um, one of the things that's important to know with your new employer is how soon are they going to start the new firm process? Most employers are going to have a six-month or one-year waiting period before they even go through that process because it's a hassle, it's expensive, you know, and they want to make sure that you're a good fit for the organization. So ask about that. Um, perhaps you could tell a commute from abroad if you do run out of H-1B time. And the PERM process is a future offer when you get the green card. So you could be working outside the U.S., working the job that they've offered for you while they get to a good place in the firm or I-140 to be able to do that adjustment or uh, immigrant visa processing at the consulate. Um, and lastly, you know, it comes to the end, I often get the question, well, what do you think I should do? A lot of times this is just, it's a personal choice. What's more important to you right now? You know, is it getting the green card in hand and then perhaps remaining with the employer you're with? Or is it this is such a good opportunity for you and your family, you don't want to miss it. It's good for you professionally. It's good for your family. You know, and then you just have to weigh, really, what's more important to you. Excellent. Excellent analysis and discussion. Uh, I know we always try to stay between the 30 to 45 minutes. I see we are close to right about the little over the 30-minute mark. So we'll try to wrap up in the next 5 to 10 minutes to be sensitive to your time and also to make sure we give you enough food for you, food for thought to really understand, you know, how this actually works. So I know one of the questions we get all the time is, well, if I don't, can't extend my H1 because of a multitude of reasons, what are my other options? And we talk about, you know, change of status, for example, to a B1, B2, to an F1 student visa, the tourist visa, the O1, the spouse dependent H4 especially if your principal, the other spouse has got an I-140 petition approval and now you may be eligible for the H-4 with the H-4 EAD card. Uh, we sometimes talk about the employer saying, oh, you can go remotely and work from abroad, and Jim touched upon it, telecommuting from abroad, but the question is, can you do that? It may be better if you can get a work permit of some kind from Canada, and I know that we help coordinate that as well through Jim and the firm for people interested in the Canadian option by working with Canadian lawyers where you could do that just to buy a little bit of time and work in the same time zone and that way you cross either the 365 days of the perm filing or getting the I-140 approved to get the three-year H-1 extension at that point. Uh, I know there's another very exciting option like the E-2 Treaty Trader Treaty Investor option where you can obtain third country citizenship. Again, very, very interesting, which I don't know if uh, Chris has done some of those. He wants to jump in and explain how that works, but it's fascinating, uh, for, creative. Very, yeah, very quickly, Sheila, because I know we're nearing the end of our time here. Basically, E2 is a, E2 is a treaty investor mm -hmm. visa. Um, we have treaties. The United States has treaties with certain countries that basically says, pursuant to this treaty, you can come here. Uh, invest in a, in a U.S. business or start your own business and get E2 status based on that investment. Um, it doesn't lead to a green card, but it basically allows you to stay here as long as you're managing that, that, that business. Um, and you have to, we have to have a treaty with that country. Now, a lot of, our, a lot of the people we talk to are born in India. 
we do not have an E2 treaty with India, which means normally would not be available to Indian citizens. Um, but there's something that's, that's developed in the past couple of years. Uh, some countries, primarily countries in the Caribbean, are basically offering um, this, uh, this situation where if you make an investment in, in one of these countries, Grenada is the one that's, that's I think, that attracted the most attention. You invest a certain, amount of, uh, a certain amount of money in Grenada, you can get Grenadian citizenship. Now, if you're a citizen of Grenada, you are eligible for the, ET, for the E2, uh, E2 status. So it's kind of a, a two-step process. You invest in Grenada, get the, get the Grenadian citizenship, and that makes you eligible to invest in the U.S. and get E2 visa status. No, I mean, it's, it's obviously you have to have that kind of capital available to do this, but I, I definitely talk to people who, who are interested in this option. And if you, if, and it's not if, millions if right of dollars like the EB5, it's a much, low, much, much lower threshold. You have to just sometimes buy a house worth $350,000 in, for example, sort of one of the Caribbean countries, some of the Caribbean countries, as Chris was just saying. So being open, being creative, looking at options, understanding it for you, your family members, your key employees, et cetera, all different options to consider. Uh, Jim, I know that we wanted to talk about a few other examples, you know, what happens if the I-140 is revoked or whatever, but if you're not, I know we're trying to be sensitive to the time issues as well, but I think we've got sort of gone through and explained the rules fairly well. But if anybody has any thoughts or comments or questions that you want to jump in, please feel free to do so. Um, and if not, I would, uh, Jim, uh, Chris, either one of you wants to add anything uh, before I close? Yeah, I think we touched upon, I think we touched upon all that, you know, throughout actually uh, our conversation today. So I think we've hit all the important points. Thank you, Jim. I, and go ahead, Chris. I would I would agree with Jim. I think we we've, we've covered the most important important uh, elements here. Wonderful. So uh, as you can see, we've given you a big sort of a big broad brush overview of the nuances, the complexity, the exceptions, the exception to the exceptions. How you can try to extend your uh, individual or your employee's H-1B status beyond the six years. What are the different criteria? How can you can fit within an exception to be eligible for the extensions? Uh, and if you're not eligible, then how you can show it was factors beyond your control or, you know, through no fault of your own, different legal arguments that you want to make. And as always, uh, you want to have the best legal team on your side. And if you don't have a good lawyer or you're not comfortable, feel free to consult with any of us or use us at the Murthy Law Firm. It's always a pleasure and honor for us to continue to educate, empower, and enlighten our individuals, our families, our employers throughout the process. On behalf of Chris Drynan, Jim McLaughlin, and our entire Muti Law Firm team, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon, and we look forward to continuing to help you as we navigate these murky waters on the constantly changing immigration law rules. Have a wonderful afternoon, everybody. Take care. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.